0: Hey, so BinTech Newscast. My name's John, and with me is our crypto specialist, Steve. How are you doing?
1: I got a new promotion. Thank you. Thank you, John. So generous of you. Good to be here.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm glad you're you're glad to be here. So, uh, pretty interesting uh, these days with uh, I you know what I'm calling it is kind of the winners and losers economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, the 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 solid, profitable, stable players are are doing well and everything that's kind of gotten bubbly the past few years or decade actually um, is kind of getting some some air lit, let out of it. Uh, crypto is part of that. Home prices in uh, the Bay Area here in, in, near Silicon Valley, uh, you see that and and some other places that have been maybe- gotten, In Boise, uh, Idaho? A, a bit, yeah, Boise, Idaho. I, I saw that article about that. Uh, are kind of, um, yeah, not doing as well as they were before. Uh, But yeah, other places doing just great if they have a a solid business proposition. But one thing that you can see that maybe didn't have a solid business proposition was uh, some of these investment platforms for crypto, like Three Arrows Capital. That looks like an interesting story.
1: It's really really fascinating. It's funded by these two guys who were rather young. I think they're 35 or so. Both went to Andover. And I believe Colombia as well, both moved to Singapore for tax reasons. And then just essentially uh, Sam Bankman-Fried, who's the head of FTX, uh, uh, ascribes most of the, of the fault for the uh, crypto bust on three hours capital because they brought down the entire market. I think they wiped out $1 trillion in, in,
0: in value, which is just incredible for, for two 35-year-olds. I put that on your resume. <laughs> i have some info. i move markets
1: i i yeah exactly i can sink an entire segment of of the markets by I like the with, way people, with my foolishness
0: you know if you get big enough or you get like kind of like that brand association people automatically think you know what you're doing like you host I mean, a fintech it, newscast podcast and people think hey maybe that guy knows something this is the guy about i mean FinTech. It, it, <laughs>
1: it, it actually happened recently with um Adam Newman as well, who got a a a boatload of money as well to for another real estate venture. So it's just
0: that guy filling the space. Yeah, must be some amazing. He is a, an amazing salesperson and talker. That's for sure.
1: I honestly never want to meet him because I feel like he'll hypnotize me and I'll just like give give him my house or something.
0: Like he just he must have superpowers.
1: He must be some kind of Svengali,
0: and he'll turn it into a communal center where you live, work, <laughs> and play. I guess and play. Yeah, I, yeah. I I'm uh. You know, uh, totally random guess. I'm going to say that that uh, I think it's called Flow, his new deal. Uh, I'm going to guess it's going to lose money, but that's just me. That's (laughs) just me. Who knows? Who knows? I don't know. I I can't tell the future. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're lucky to have someone with us that knows uh, a thing or two about investing. Bob Stark, the global head of market strategy at Kariba. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much,
2: John. Appreciate that. I like the banter back and forth. Yeah, that seems like some very stable investments. But uh, it's all scripted. for them.
0: That, did that sound natural?
2: Oh, cool, very no. much.
0: <laughs> yeah. All right. So, uh, have you followed any of these uh, crypto investment platforms? Uh, that what the Three hours Capital we just mentioned. Uh, what was the uh, uh, just a few others, Steve? That had uh, what was the other one that had well. There was Voyager. They, Voyager. They crazy, but
1: actually, go Voyager. Yeah, yeah. but um, staying on on the three AC note as well. I um, it's funny because Kariba uh, came came to mind, Bob, because one of the allegations that the, that um, that the liquidators have against Three Hours Capital is that they basically kept their their liquidity in, in an Excel spreadsheet, which is a very unsophisticated awesome. way of pooling <laughs> yeah. funds, right? So right. they they had no idea who they no were to. So no all there. No risk. In the Dropbox
0: file. A Google yeah. Sheet or something like that. Yeah. It's open. Wow. Anybody can
1: edit it. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a really uh, it's a really prime 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 example of how not to do business in this space.
2: I would love to say that was the only reason that they had a problem. <laughs> uh as being not very anti-spreadsheet, but spreadsheets have their place, and that would clearly be not one of them.
1: Yes.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, it shows how hard it is to uh really build up all the systems, uh, and, and not just the execution, but uh, all the risk management protocols. I mean, you see that with um, uh, compliance uh, uh, issues with so many fintechs that are uh, growing up and then went right into a wall uh, when their security systems or, or or so many things aren't up to snuff. Uh, you help a lot of companies uh, take care of the treasury side, the Uh, what to do with their cash.
2: Exactly. I won't make it a sales pitch about Kriba, but I'll give you the 30-second version. Then we can talk about fun things. So Kriba, yeah, we're a platform. We provide basically visibility, tracking, uh, risk management for payments, treasury, cash, liquidity, that whole gambit. So yeah, when you mentioned a moment ago about tracking liquidity in a spreadsheet uh, it does make me cringe a little bit to be completely transparent it's one of those things that there's a lot of organizations not as much now but certainly in the decades that I've been in this space that would track uh, as a corporate you know, fortune 100 200 500 organization and they would track their cash in a spreadsheet they would how much money they had what their projected cash was what it looked like for the next three months. This would all be in a spreadsheet with a lot of the lookup formulas and if then statements. Uh, it's not the best way to do things. And most organizations, and I'd say this with about 90% of them, don't do this. Um, they will use something more sophisticated that integrates with their bank platforms, integrates if they were to go into cryptocurrency. Their trading platforms and other areas that they're holding assets and managing liquidity, both for investing and borrowing and currency and things like that. So that's the world we play in and support a lot of different organizations, making sure that they have a little bit uh, more rigor than the tracking liquidity in the spreadsheet that you were talking about a moment ago.
0: So, your target companies aren't any, in any particular industry, but where they're just large enough to have uh, some of these uh, cash flow, liquidity, planning issues. Uh, but not big enough. Uh, and you mentioned like 500, maybe a thousand or, or, or more people where they they uh, can't efficiently or economically do this on their own. Is yeah,
2: right? I think there's there's pieces to that. I would say large organizations is kind of a given. They have enough bank accounts, enough banks, enough Places that they do business that tracking cash is actually a bit of an exercise and answering a simple question that the CFO or the CEO might have about how much money do we have or how much how many days of survival do we have based on our current level of liquidity, which, believe it or not, was a very popular question two years ago at the outset of the pandemic and arguably more recently as some of the challenges with interest rates going up and credit tightening a little bit. All of those are very normal questions that people want quick and easy answers to. So, you could be a relatively small organization, maybe 10, 20, $30 million in revenue. If you have a need to manage your cash flow, you probably need something more robust than a spreadsheet. If you're a significantly large organization, maybe multinational, maybe you have 30 banks and 500 bank accounts, which is, let's say, the medium side for most corporations then again you're going to have some complexities that tracking by a spreadsheet using post it notes probably not the most appropriate tools to use
0: uh, yeah yeah maybe maybe not uh so what are some of the things i'm kind of curious like the the anecdote side of it uh, but what are the, some of the things uh, uh you're surprised that people don't know when they're when they're engaging your services or that they're um I guess. Well, you mentioned uh, you know, mentioning this in Excel, or or some of the opportunities maybe they're they're missing. Well,
2: I'd say there's a lot of ways to answer that. Certainly, the automation and productivity is uh, most people understand that they're if they're spending time bringing data together, if they're spending time trying to figure out where the numbers are or how to get this piece of information out of a row and column in a spreadsheet. But that's probably not the best use of their time. So uh, I'll take that as a given that most people understand that they know the value of their time and they know what they can be doing if they add more of it. What maybe some people are surprised at is especially right now, because what we're seeing in the market is a little bit different than what we saw even several months ago before interest rates started to go up, before we saw these very unprecedented levels of inflation in, these, in this generation of workers. And the vulnerability that you have in your balance sheet, in your income statement, your cash flow statement to these confluence of factors, I don't want to get super technical about it, except to say that when you get interest rates rising, you get inflation going, obviously there's some supply chain challenges for many organizations still, currency volatility is, let's just say, up and down a lot, (laughs) hence volatility. That confluence of factors, we haven't seen those in a long time, and in fact, most people that are in Treasury or Finance have seen those in their careers, might have read about it in books or something, but they haven't really seen these kind of numbers since late 80s. So as a result, they get a little bit surprised at how much of an impact those, we'll just say, aggregated numbers, what impact that data has on what they need to accomplish, which is figure out the basics of how much money do I have? How much am I going to need? And what sort of levers do I need to pull to ensure that I can actually keep within those targets that the CFO and CEO are telling me? So incredibly vigorous, amazing stuff. That's what we do to make sure it's simple and easy for
0: customers. Sounds like a fun challenge to, to build that up, actually. But I, I might be a, a little bit of a finance geek, so that, that, that might be, I might be a little biased that way. So, how much do you have to integrate with the the company's systems? It, it seems like you know they they want to know really up to date uh, information. Uh, you're making a lot of direct connections to their their banks, their systems. You have all all the access to this uh, to to get this data right for them, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Data is the I mean, it's the commodity. I know it's a very overused cliche. I hate
0: even saying it. It's and the because, oil of the future, man. <laughs> there you go.
2: Well said. Uh, so let's ride that. It, but it is, it's so important. And that data can be everything from how much money do I have in the bank? Or what access to credit do I have with the bank? Or how can I send payments to the bank? Or maybe even non-bank. You know, We're in the world of neo banks and we'll call it alternative payment channels. So the bank doesn't necessarily have to be part of that. But most corporates do. like They're part of the banking community globally. So that's part of it. Most organizations we deal with have some level of financial enterprise system. So ERP or something similar. It might be as big as an SAP or Oracle, like Microsoft. might be something that is very based in that industry, you know, MRI and real estate or Acumatica or NetSuite. It doesn't really matter what they are. You're probably storing data in there, which is useful to help you understand what your cash looks like, how you mobilize and move cash via payments what sort of exposures you have to your balance sheet, to things like currency and rise in interest rates, all that sort of stuff is part of the, we'll call it the data that is the oil of of the future that people need to get their hands on. Uh, You had actually a a podcast, I guess, about a month ago, uh, Paul Fahey at Northern Trust, Data Scientist. This is the kind of expertise and thinking that's coming into finance and banking is this understanding that there's, a whole level of data analytics that has never really been done before, at least in this part of organizations. And it is, uh, I will say, emerging, up and coming, all those blah, blah, blah words, but it's really important. And CFOs are really starting to get a handle on it. And we do help with that.
0: And, and are you helping them, like kind of quasi consulting? Because uh, uh, they, they have to have some team on their side. So I, I wonder where the expertise kind of uh, uh, has to blend over to the company. Uh, yeah. well, they say, how much cash do I have? Well, do you mean liquid securities right now or 30-day plus, or you, you can sell these, but there'll be a haircut? Um, You're right. You know, that is... the, the planning aspect, because you, you, your, your cash is kind of invested based on your expectations, right? So you got to, uh, it seems like... Um, you know do you, do you is that all up to them or is it like a team effort there?
2: It's generally up to them like most organizations have an investment policy, and that investment policy will have we'll just say different layers to it on the treasury side of the organization, they're typically dealing with relatively shorter term liquidity, and so they may be looking at something as simple as the next week. the next week, you're probably not getting into equities, you're probably not getting into, let's say, crypto, if you were, you know, some of the corporates that decide to take positions in that. You're probably not getting into more fixed assets. You're really just parking it in things which are right now, money market and overnight investments. Um, those are the sorts of things because you're you're really focused on the liquidity and ensuring that you have enough. Once you have more certainty that's where you might get other parts of the organization, or you might outsource to third parties, you know, custodials and whatnot that are gonna manage that level of cash uh, for you. Because as you all know, there's organizations that are conserving cash, generally speaking, since 2008, we've seen a swelling of balance sheets that certainly was the case during the pandemic and certainly the case where we are now, that there's this thirst to continue acquiring cash and maintain it on your balance sheet. It's seen as a good thing by investors, it's seen as a safety measure by CFOs and CEOs who want to ensure that they don't get into an uncomfortable borrowing situation. So, yes, we want to make sure that they have the data and visibility so that they know what they have and they're in a position to pull the trigger or pull the levers in terms of getting value out of that cash and being able to understand with more certainty here's what next looks like so that they can be very confident that they can invest in something longer term that doesn't need to be redeemed in the next seven days or 30 days or 13 weeks. So that was probably a longer answer than you're looking for, but that's the genesis of what they do in treasury. Make sure that they're certain about the short term before they start making decisions about the longer term um, opportunities with their balance sheet and cash.
0: Okay, right, yeah, makes make sense.
1: Yeah, and how, how would you say it's sort of the uh, the status quo of a company that hasn't used your services yet? Um, in terms of how they track all these things? Is it mostly spreadsheet-based or are they just having, do they use basically their own homebrew or in-house built systems? How, how, how does this look like before you guys come
0: in? QuickBooks, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, it depends
2: on, it depends a little bit on the size of the business. Most, I'll say larger organizations, let's just say 500 million and above, are probably using spreadsheets for modeling, maybe even though I was going to say a little bit of business intelligence, but obviously platforms like Tableau and Click and Power BI are probably being utilized more often than they were a few years ago. But you're probably using spreadsheets for more, we'll call it play in analytics. The actual tracking, you would have some sort of database, whether it's a system like Kriba, whether it's maybe even using your bank platforms. Um, generally, people aren't using spreadsheets anymore. It, it's funny to ask about homegrown systems. When I got into this business for like 25 that dates me a little bit, but years ago, homegrown systems were actually a thing. And it's the advent of the cloud, and certainly the fact that you can do things cheaper and easier just by outsourcing and hosting. Those tend to not be very popular anymore. Um, I think it's partially based on the outsourcing of IT as well. There's a lot of different factors we could probably spend a lot of
0: time on. Auditors don't want to see that either. Well,
2: yeah, let's just go. There's a lot of driving forces, and yes, auditors definitely part of that as well. So you don't see those as much. You do see some spreadsheet use in the smaller uh, organizations that are more emerging, maybe starting to establish a cash focus as opposed to just a bank and AR or AP focus. And then obviously it drives into more complexity. It just depends on what are you trying to accomplish with your cash? What are you trying to accomplish with your payments? How are you trying to protect your cash and balance sheet and income statement from all these crazy economic things that are out there?
0: Crazy things? I don't know. The world's so stable. Everything's so <laughs> boring these it's, days. It, it's so predictable. Yeah. Yeah
1: it's, yeah, it's it's
2: almost boring. I know. I, I we think that every day, like, oh, it's too bad that interest rates aren't changing. It's too bad inflation is so low. Too bad that currencies don't move.
0: Yeah, there's no wars. There's no tension anywhere. Yeah, oh,
2: nothing, yeah. nothing. Simple and easy all the time. Um, but yeah, it, it's a challenge for CFOs. I mean, the one thing that it's kind of interesting, I find anyway, um, being sort of the finance side as well, as you were saying as well, John earlier, is that. What emerged during the pandemic was this need for multiple scenarios because the different potential outcomes, even if it's just in the cash, liquidity, payments area or risk management area, those variety of outcomes, they could have been so different that you really didn't know. You had people, people like organizations, but people for those organizations that were in positions where they're being asked, how much do we have left? How many days do we have of survival here? And other ones that were looking at more, how, how are we going to meet expectations? What does next look like? And those outcomes were so diverse all over the place that you ended up meaning that the projection of cash forecasting, this became really, really difficult. And there's a lot of if then built into these analyses. That changed a lot um, the practice, never mind, obviously, the fact that inflation has driven a lot of different weird outcomes as well these days. But I'd say that. Treasury changed quite significantly two years ago, and it's not looking back
0: now. Uh, expectations always get higher, too. That's that's for sure. Uh, so, what kind of companies are, are well? We mentioned kind of the size. Uh, any specific industries that have been uh, hitting you guys up lately, or or has that changed? Uh, did that change during the pandemic, and now that we're coming out of it now? It's only yeah. crypto funds.
2: Oh yeah, of <laughs>
0: yeah, course, only yeah.
1: crypto funds.
2: <laughs> I think we things. already established that they have some need for. We'll yes. save better technology <laughs> and controls. Um, I would say like, typically treasury is one of those areas where it doesn't matter how like how large an organization you are. It doesn't matter what your underlying business is. You're always going to have a need to manage cash more efficiently, more effectively, and obviously grow it so that you can actually show that you're doing something with it, make your investors happy. Every industry has this. Now, there's nuances from space to space. I mean, you look at, let's just say, health insurance. It's a fairly American-based business in the sense that a lot of, like Canada, where I'm from and other countries uh, don't have it, there's no private side to that, really. So it's a fairly domestic-based business. You don't have some of these threats like currency, but you do have um, the need to operationalize cash. You do have the need to be able to show value off of your balance sheet. That's something that's unique totally that space, but that level of organization. You have retail, which has very significant transaction volumes. Um, they're ones that they need to, They, many cases, especially with supply chain disruptions and rising costs, they have a lot of strategy built into their margins. And so they need to ensure that the cash that they have is being used appropriately, being reinvested where it needs to, being returned to shareholders in a way that continues to make their share price attractive. These sorts of nuances do vary from organization to organization, but in the end, they all need to manage cash. They all need to understand the liquidity and they all need to have a better grasp and strategy to proactively deal with risk.
0: So this is pretty complex just to do for one company. Uh, You're doing this for, well, as many as you can implement. Uh, What what kind of technology or how how did the system develop uh, to do this for, for each individual company?
2: Yeah, great question. The history of, of this industry, if you want to call it like treasury or liquidity management systems, it predates the cloud. So these were built on you know client-server technology, fairly easily run. You didn't have a tremendous amount of data back in the 90s. As you started to see, you know, dot ASP and those sorts of technologies come out. My organization, Kriva, we actually started as a you know, multi-tenant SaaS. I mean, it was before those words were quite used together, but that's what it was. Um, since then, most, just like every other uh, software vertical, everything's gone cloud since then. And then it's just a matter of making sure that you provide not just the horsepower to make uh, to get the performance and the uptime that people are looking for, but also that you're providing that level of controls and security so that you no know, CISO or CIO or CTO or all three of them uh, are concerned about how you're helping them with their internal governance and data management. So it's, you know, now it's you're not hosting in some place in Arizona or another one in. You know, North Carolina to make sure that it's the safest place and least disruptive possible. Everyone's using Azure, AWS, etc., these sorts of platforms now. And it's just a matter of making sure that everything's available for an organization that has multiple touch points around the world.
1: So it's interesting because um one word that you didn't mention is AI, which seems to be it seems to play a role in basically every Every uh, fintech that we we speak with, and I know that you guys play a lot with with, with APIs as well. But um, is is there is there a use case for using AI in your services? Absolutely.
2: Yeah, I I actually didn't mention it just because I think I, I I'm checked on this often because there's many organizations in our space that don't have a good data strategy and as a result don't have a great support for AI across the platforms, but. AI is so important, right? There's you know a whole continuum. There's organizations we run into, they're they have rules-based automation, they call it AI. We all know that's maybe not the case, but we'll just leave that up to interpretation. But it, yeah. Yeah, and then there's obviously the very deep learning, which we don't see as much in finance at this point. There's not as many applications for those, period, never mind commercialized and corporate finance. But there is a lot of use cases for machine learning kind of being right in the middle of those two extremes. And we see it for everything such as fraud detection, being able to you know, just take a very adversarial, you know, good cop, bad cop approach kind of thing to understand, here's what a good payment looks like. But similarly, here's what a bad payment looks like. Let's make sure that we're screening our data in real time against what those suspicious payments might be. What are the scenarios that we're trying to protect against? What's an example of a payment that might have been initiated by a fraudster or someone that was actually able to get into um, payment systems to initiate something that shouldn't have been sent out at all. That's a perfect use case. Cash forecasting is another one where Mm -hmm. you're able to train it and learn from clearing patterns for AP, especially AR. Actually, it's a very popular one because it's hard for treasurers to predict when they're going to get paid. But these are excellent use cases to help predict. What is our cash flow and liquidity going to look like? When do we think these suppliers or these customers of ours are going to actually pay us? What is the ideal scenario, going back to one of the points you made before, around when we should be paying our suppliers to optimize that balance of maybe getting discounts, but also preserving our own working capital and the cash flow in our balance sheet? So, machine learning plays well in all of those. And there's a variety of other things too. I mean, just simple things like recognizing if you're trying to read a bank statement, what's a number one and what's an I or what's a zero and what's an O. Mm -hmm. Those are maybe more simple examples, but they all play a role. You're looking to harness data to make meaning of it and to automate as much as you possibly can so that you're not yourself trying to figure out your cash forecast. You're trying to figure out what do I do with this now that I've actually had my systems and automation prepare all the data for me.
0: Yeah. Not, not a problem I've, I've had too often. What do I do with all this money now? It's all, <laughs> uh, it's all well invested. And um, you know, I, 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 thought it was pretty interesting on your website. You, you mentioned uh, the ESG aspect of it. Uh, so that the company has to, well, wants to and, and has to in some cases uh, comply with uh, uh, or or be forward thinking on things like climate change and diversity, and then that that filters through to your investments. So you you end up driving demand for uh, ESG and uh, carbon neutral investments and and these kinds of uh requests as well, right?
2: Absolutely. I, I mean, we all know it's a very emerging area and there's a lot of attention on it. Uh, I guess I would say personally for good, you know, I I like to see that that's happening because there's a lot of good things that can come out of this, but you're right. There's a lot of pressures and there's a lot of interests that have to be met. And some of them are very simple, like in terms of being able to show as a supplier of software and of liquidity platform to all of our customers, many of which are quite large, they will want from us, what is your carbon footprint? What is your strategy in terms of going, uh, be able to get carbon neutral to help them in their own disclosures? Obviously, things in terms of diversity and inclusion are incredibly important. And we want to ensure that we're continually not just showing, hey, here's what we've got so far, but our path to improvement. Most organizations will say that there's always opportunities to improve. So Kariba is is, uh, yeah.
0: operates as carbon neutral?
2: We are working our way towards that. That's
0: it. We're done. This interview's done.
2: I know. I know. <laughs> We're. I think we're. I mean, there's still more work to do, and I think everyone's saying that. We're in a pretty good place, especially being a SaaS a multi-tenant platform and working with some great suppliers like AWS, as an example. It helps us. It gives us a good head start over some that may not quite have that same level of efficiency in their architecture. Um, obviously, COVID and the pandemic have made it simpler from a hybrid and working from home environment. We've always been a very remote organization anyways. We weren't mm-hmm. incredibly office heavy. As a result, those things have helped us be able to be in a position where we're much closer to carbon neutral and really have a good positive uptake there.
0: Yeah, and so it wasn't... Uh... So you're very, you're all knowledge workers. Uh, it wasn't a, well, I guess it impacted everybody, but you could, you guys worked all remote and, and that's where um, you, you still are these days or?
2: Yeah, great question. I mean, we're headquartered in in La Jolla. So just outside of San Diego and we still oh,
0: are. Oh, nice place. Um,
2: it is a beautiful place. as a Vancouverite um, on the West Coast. It's a simple trip. And mm-hmm. when I take, I used to take. Um, These are places really
0: want to go to work, where people. And you're exactly. opening a new office on uh, Oahu, and uh, <laughs> oh my yeah. goodness, to be! There, those life. are also
2: nice places to be. I can see the why interesting you work part, here, Bob. Yeah, yeah, it's it's nice, and even our our global offices are in wonderful locations. But the reality is, is that there's not as much need to travel as there used to be. So we were a very remote organization. and We had offices in a couple of different spots in the U.S. and we really brought that back to, to one, into La Jolla. Everyone else is remote and that's intentional. And it's a similar strategy where it's a very hybrid work environment around the world, every place that we operate. And that's just part of our DNA. It's not like we had to change a lot um, when March 2020 came along. And our exit from that is no different. There's people that go into the office in the hallway if they want to, but there's as many people that don't um, as do, and that's a good thing. I mean, it's a nice culture to have that's very supportive of that.
0: Yeah, great, great. Wow, I'm going to send my resume right away. <laughs> Please do. Sounds yeah, pretty <laughs> enticing, actually. Yeah. So you're not just simply uh, counting dollars and accumulating bank accounts. You're really helping to manage things like uh, the volatility uh, in the portfolio, like a uh, value at risk, um, you know, hedging strategies, uh, using different uh, securities or derivatives for that kind of thing. Uh, so it's not just, it's not just um, uh, uh, listing out cash, right?
2: Correct. It is not. It's everything from let's say borrowed investing, which I, typically consider liquidity. It's being able to raise or utilize cash, but it's also protecting that cash. And that's where we do get into derivatives. Most organizations, especially, well, actually, I guess anywhere in the world, but certainly the United States as well, have currency volatility to to deal with. The US dollar has been strengthening significantly over the past year. And we went past par with the euro, which is a big touch point, and a big signal to the market in terms of what the future looks like. Organizations are affected by that. US organizations that have some percentage, reasonable percentage of revenues that are, that are international, like they're in pounds or they're in euros or they're in yen or what basket of currencies that they're working in, they are affected quite significantly. And we do help provide visibility into what those exposures look like. And then give them the integration to be able to do something about that. Not every organization hedges their currency, but if they do, then they can certainly transact through the platform with the tools that are out there and then managing the back office. And that's where obviously it gets really fun and interesting when you start getting into things like valuations, like you have to price all these different instruments. You have to look at those gains and losses. You have to, Put them in the appropriate sheet or area of the balance sheet before they go in the income statement, hedge accounting, which is even less fun uh, to talk about. But nonetheless, it's compliance and it needs to happen. So there's a whole end-to-end spectrum of understanding your exposures, whether we're talking commodity, interest rate, or currency, being able to have the insight to know, what do I do with these? And how do I align those to where our policy is? Because as I said, there's some organizations that just provide guidance on the effect of currency or their vulnerability to interest rates, they're not actually going to hedge. Um, whatever their outcome is, they still need data to know what that looks like. So they can communicate to the market, our revenues or our earnings are affected by these headwinds to the tune of maybe another one or 2%. These are the sorts of disclosures that have been happening this calendar year. And we're in a position to help them with that insight, or if in they want to be able to hedge those off and smooth out the impact to Balance sheets, income statements, they can do that and then deal with the compliance in the back end. So there's a lot of stuff to All oh, that work fun with accounting. All oh, right. Oh, it's the best. Yeah. John. It's the best.
0: Does uh, it meet but, the hedge accounting? Is it 80% effective? What's going on yeah, here? Yeah. You that. <laughs> yeah. So those,
2: those were, I mean, you probably remember that too. But it, I mean, when that came in, I remember it was basically 1999 was that struggle year when it came effective in 2000. And what a headache that was. And and you look at where we are now with that, just that 81.25 or 81.20, I remember that debate of of what that was. Luckily, those in the rearview mirror, but there's a heck of a lot more complexity now in terms of partial hedging. And when you look at things like correlated VAR um, and being able to utilize hedging one currency, which potentially has some impact and helping your your net exposure on another, there's a lot here in terms of improving the efficiency of your hedges that was never really contemplated back then but still needs to be managed now. So there's definitely some headaches we take away, uh,
0: thankfully because I don't know. Uh, sounds like fun to me. I'm starting to miss my treasury days right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, you
2: can <laughs> come back anytime you want John. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so what is um what is the challenge for Kariba to keep growing? Uh, I imagine well, it just sounds like you have to do a pretty intense, well-planned, but you guys do it uh, regularly, uh, implementation, so it's not like you can just um, uh, get more downloads on an app or something like that, uh, but what other things, uh, what other obstacle, uh, if you could wave the magic wand, uh, would you remove to to grow Kyriba further?
2: You know, the biggest thing, and maybe it's a privilege to be able to answer it in this way, but... Growth comes from really two different areas. It's increased complexity of the requirements and capabilities that we're offering. So as an example, if you're focused on a working capital strategy, you're trying to figure out how do I actually improve the level of cash in my balance sheet? That's an objective of yours. Being able to look at your AP strategy. Am I paying my invoices in the optimal place earlier or later? to meet that objective? Am I actually helping influence and control when receivables are coming in so I get paid when I want to? Those are the sorts of things where that gets more complex. That helps us. We can innovate and provide more capabilities to our existing clients that, I guess, help us grow, but certainly help them be in a better place. Similarly, we can attract more organizations and we operate in a lot of different places around the world, but we can always operate in more. So global expansion um, making it simpler and easier for maybe smaller organizations to be part of this. Every organization, virtually over a billion dollars, has a system like this of some sort. But there's a lot of organizations under it that haven't quite got to that level yet, and it, they need to be understand that it's simple and easy for them to do it. That there's, it's not a like the word you use implementation. An implementation isn't a multi-year exercise like it used to be. Um, these are things that can be done days or weeks, sometimes months, depending on how many things you have to do. Uh, it's not as hard with apps as you put it, with APIs, with all of these technologies that just make things a lot more pleasant than in the old days when you had to hire teams of people to make software work.
0: Yeah, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> yeah, expensive people too. Yeah, yes. yes. Whether they were worth it or not.
2: I'm sure they were, but Sometimes. nonetheless. We're, yeah, exactly. It's a it's a different place. I mean, I, that's what the cloud's done. A, so this is really open banking,
0: fund. APIs, all of this is uh, is uh, uh, helping make this more, well, more, more efficient, cheaper, makes sense. I think
2: it is. I mean, and there's there's probably a whole podcast built into that, but the short answer would be is that The one thing open banking has done is it's made data more accessible. And as a result, it allows organizations to then start thinking, how do I actually start using this data to help build value in my organization? And that is the next way, whether we're talking finance or other, understanding how do I get my data aggregated? How do I unify it? How do I harness it? And how do I actually use it as that commodity as we talked about earlier on?
0: Oh, yeah, for sure. uh, so just to wrap up, um any advice you have out there for other fintechs, not ones that compete with you, but let's say some other ones um that there are some common mistakes that you see where you're like, "Why well, you know they, they really should know this kind of thing when you're when you're growing up.
2: It's probably a lot. Uh, I would say the first thing is, and it sounds very cliche, but I'm going to say it anyways because it's really important. Customers are the most important thing. And you really need to understand your customers, value your customers, and never forget about where you came from, which is helping them. There's going to be, especially for early stage fintech, there's going to be those organizations that take a chance on you. And individually, you always want to work with that, but you never want to lose that culture. That innovative culture is what makes fintechs grow into big techs. Um, it also is what can vary a fintech um, if you lose sight of that. So the customer, it's something I was taught early in my career, and it's something that we embrace where I am now and every stage I've been, is that customers are critical to success in individually and in aggregate. So simple lesson. I'm sure everyone says that, but it is very, very true.
0: Well, you, you know, it's a... Uh... Yeah, a lot of things sound simple, but uh, don't actually get implemented or, or people kind of lose sight when you're in the middle of things. So, yeah, uh, d- definitely some some good advice. Uh, thanks for that. And thanks for an interesting podcast and joining us this week.
2: Well, thank you very much, Steve and John. I appreciate it. It was fun. So I like talking to you all.
0: That's uh, Bob Stark, the Global Head of Market Strategy at Kariba. Please hit subscribe to keep up with the latest in fintech news. And thank you for listening.